Have you noticed a lot of foods today uh, use a lot of preservatives and the additives? And the reason why they do that is they want to make the foods taste better, but also last longer. I had a friend who found a chicken nugget. He remembers buying it a year previous, and he found the chicken nugget in his car, and he said it looked the same as when he first bought it, which shows you a lot of what we're putting in our bodies. Well, today, because of a lot of the unhealthy stuff that we eat, preservatives, additives, what they're doing is they're making stuff today more organic. This has been a push probably the last 20, 30 years. In fact, you'll see organic food. You'll notice the picture up there. There's organic ice cream. I have y'all's attention now because you're looking at that ice cream going, I'd like to have some of that. Then you got organic meat. And then this one really got me. Years ago, I bought this can of uh, whipped cream. You know, the kind that you go to the refrigerator and open it and put it in your mouth. You kind of squirt it. It says no artificial hormones. I thought, what are we putting in our body? Can you imagine you got a growth on your neck? And uh, someone said, how do you get that? By squirting whipped cream in my mouth. See, they put a lot of preservatives and additives in food. And so there's this push to become more organic. Well, as we start the book of Galatians this morning, what Paul is going to do is he's going to give the organic gospel. It's a gospel that's organic because he says there's no preservatives and there's no additives. In other words, if you add anything to the gospel of grace that you're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ, if you add works, if you add baptism, if you add the sacraments, if you add anything to the pure, simple, organic gospel, you're saved by faith alone, what you're doing is you're adding preservatives and additives, and Paul says, spit it out. He says, don't listen to it. So turn, if you will, to Galatians chapter 1. As we start the book of Galatians this morning, we're working our way through the New Testament. For those of you who are visiting with us, and at Calvary Chapel, we go verse by verse, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 1 through 10. We're going to slow down as we get into Paul's epistles. And in this section, what the Apostle Paul is going to do is he's basically going to give the gospel message, not only here, but throughout the book, because the gospel was under assault, which it always is, because Satan wants to counterfeit the gospel. Now, let me give you a little bit of background so you understand why Paul wrote the book of Galatians. The Apostle Paul took three missionary journeys. This is his first journey. He's going to travel from his main hub church here in Antioch, and he's going to go all the way to this area called Galatia. It was occupied by the Gauls. They were a Germanic people, a Celtic people. They occupied this area, and so that's why it's called Galatia. And Paul went here, and he established churches in Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, probably some other churches in South Galatia here. And as soon as he got done leading many of these people to Christ and planting churches, there was a group of people called the Judaizers. The Judaizers probably came from Jerusalem. And basically, here's what they taught. They said that believing in Jesus Christ is good. Nothing wrong with his death and resurrection, but faith alone in Jesus Christ is not enough. What you have to do is go through the vestibule of Judaism. In other words, you got to believe in Jesus plus keep the laws of Moses, the feasts, the festivals, and you need to be circumcised. And they said, if you don't do that, you really cannot be saved. And so what Paul has to do here is he basically has to write the Galatian churches this epistle to tell them what the true gospel is and basically to silence 
these Judaizers who were false teachers who ostensibly appeared to be Christian, but they really were preaching a false gospel. And so what he does in the whole book, you can see an outline here of the whole book just to give you an overview. Paul is going to attack the Judaizers, and here was their accusations. In chapters 1 and 2, here's what they accuse Paul of. Paul teaches by his own authority. He's not really an apostle. See, if you can attack the apostle Paul and you could discredit him as an apostle, you'll discredit his message. So he answers and he says in chapters 1 and 2, no, I am an apostle, just like the 12. And here in chapters 1 and 2, he's more biographical. He gives his testimony more. Chapters 3 and 4, here's what the Judaizers, false teachers were saying. They're saying uh, he teaches a gospel that's contrary to the Old Testament. And Paul says, no, salvation has always been by faith. Even in the Old Testament, in chapters 3 and 4, he gets more doctrinal and theological. He quotes from the Old Testament. And then finally, the Judaizers said, Paul's message of salvation by faith alone is going to encourage a sinful lifestyle. I mean, look, if all I got to do is believe in Jesus, then I can just live like the devil. And Paul says, no, justification by faith naturally leads to godly living. And in chapters five and six, he gets very practical. So this is sort of an overview of the book. As we go through this, John and I are going to take our time to explain the organic gospel and what it is. Now, in verses 1 through 10, what he's going to do is he's going to give us four components of the organic gospel. Let me share them with you this morning. The first component of the organic gospel is the man of the gospel. Who was this man that was actually preaching the gospel? Well, notice what Paul does here in verses 1 and 2 is he identifies himself as the man of the gospel. Notice verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Right at the outset, the apostle Paul identifies himself as Paul. Now, in ancient times, whenever they would uh, write a letter, they would always put their name at the beginning. We, in our time, when we write a letter, what we do is we say to so-and-so, and that at the end of the letter, we sign our name. Well, they reversed it in that day. And notice Paul here identifies himself as the man of the gospel. He says, I'm Paul. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament, the apostle Paul, his real name was Saul. Saul was a Jew. He was a committed Pharisee. He may have been part of the Sanhedrin. And we know based on Galatians chapter 1 and reading the rest of the New Testament, that Paul was a very zealous Jew. He was sold out. He was very fastidious in terms of committing to the traditions of Judaism. He even said, I exceeded many of my contemporaries. This guy, we would say, was a sold out person. And he was a persecutor of the church. He hated Christians because he thought Christians were basically heretics. He thought Christianity was a departure from Judaism. So as you know, in the book of Acts, he tried to stamp out Judaism. He arrested Christians. He had Christians murdered. And of course, God arrested him in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared to him personally and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And as you know, Paul became an avid uh, proclaimer of Christianity. And by the way, 
He's called Saul. That's his real name, but he also was given the Gentile name Paul because in Acts chapter 13, when he launches out into his missionary journeys, he took on that name Paul in order to reach the Gentile people that were out there. And so Paul here identifies himself, and then he calls himself an apostle. What is an apostle, and why is he actually identifying himself? Well, an apostle in the Bible, the word literally means to send. You'll notice the slide here. It's one chosen and sent out with a special mission. So Jesus had the 12 apostles. Paul was one of them. Obviously, Matthias was another one. He replaced Judas. And those 12 apostles, the word Apostello means to send out. And what Jesus did was he sent them out on a special mission and he gave them the full authority to proclaim the gospel. It's kind of like today an ambassador who represents the U.S. They go to another country and they speak on behalf of the U.S. and they have the authority of our government here. Well, that's exactly what an apostle is. And so Paul, right at the outset of the letter, as he's talking about the man of the gospel, he says, I'm Paul. And then he says, I'm an apostle. Why would he call himself an apostle? Well, he's trying to establish his authority here over the churches of Galatia. He's trying to basically say, I wasn't self-appointed. Because that's why he says, I'm not sent from man, nor through the agency of man. What does he mean by that? He's saying, no one called me to this role of an apostle. There was no individual, no pope, there was no denomination, no agency that actually set me apart and said, Paul, you're going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He says, basically, by saying I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, I got my message directly from Jesus Christ. And so, right at the outset of this letter, he's attacking the false teachers who are basically saying Paul is not a true apostle. He's self-appointed. And Paul says, no. I wasn't called by any individual. I wasn't called by any denomination. I wasn't called by the Jerusalem church. I was called directly by Jesus Christ. And you know what he's saying there is, my message of the gospel that I gave you, Galatians, is the true gospel. I didn't invent it. I didn't make it up. You know, people often ask today, well, Mike, aren't there a lot of people today that claim that they got their message from God? Yeah, there are a lot of people that have experiences that they claim were from God or from an angel, and they tell you, as we're going to see later in this message, that they're proclaiming the true gospel. Paul would disagree with them, and he would say, I got my message directly from Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 1. He says, I want you to know, Galatians, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach to you is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so when Paul identifies himself as an apostle here, he's establishing his authority right off the bat. And he's saying, don't listen to those Judaizers. They're false teachers. I'm a true apostle. I was appointed by Jesus Christ, and I was given direct revelation by him. Now, some people ask the question, are there apostles today? Because sometimes when you turn on television, you'll see some teachers who call themselves apostles of Jesus Christ. Is there a succession from the original 13, Paul being the 13th? Are there apostles today? And the answer is yes and no. 
For example, to help you understand this a little better, I've distinguished two types of apostles. First of all, there's what I call the big A apostles, capital A apostles. These were the original 12. They were called by the risen Christ. In order to be an apostle, you had to be called by Christ. You had to see the risen Christ. Even Paul saw Jesus Christ in his risen state on the road to Damascus. They were the ones who laid the foundation of the church. They studied in Acts chapter 2 the apostles' doctrine. So they laid the doctrinal foundation that we find in the epistles. Furthermore, you'll notice the next slide, that a true apostle did signs, wonders, and miracles. That was one of the evidences that you were called to be an apostle, 2 Corinthians 12 says. And then finally, the Bible makes it very clear that those 13 were unique. Because if you read the book of Revelation, chapter 21, their names are going to be on the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. So no, there are no big A apostles today. There were 13 of them. They were unique. They were specifically set aside by God. They had a special mission, and they were given direct revelation by God. So in that sense, there are no big A apostles today. However, there are what I would call little a apostles. Little a apostles represents those who are sent out and they're missionaries or they're church planters. They're not a part of the original 12 or 13, but they've been set apart by God and they've been sent out. For example, in Ephesians chapter 4, what does it say? He gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. You can see where apostle is used not in a technical sense, but in a little a sense. In Acts chapter 14, verse 14, Barnabas, who was not a part of the original 13, he's called an apostle there. Why? Because he was sent out on a mission. And so there are little a apostles today that God has given the church, and they've been sent out with a special mission to accomplish God's work. In fact, to some degree, we all are apostles. Why? because we've all been sent and called by Jesus Christ to proclaim the message. You say, well, Mike, I'm not a little a apostle. I don't have an assignment like you. But listen, God has given every one of us here who know Jesus Christ an assignment to do his will. Listen, your assignment may be to be a Christian plumber. How are you affecting other people on your job? Your assignment may be to be a Christian lawyer. Now, I know that's rare, but to be a Christian lawyer. And how are you representing Jesus Christ as he sent you into the world? How about a lot of the athletes? I mean, this is the time of football. We're winding down football season. You know, there's a lot of people, a lot of players. Look at Dabo Sweeney with Clemson. He's not a big A apostle, but in one sense, he's been sent to a lot of those athletes in order to be a witness to them and to lead them into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Paul here identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who is the man of the gospel? Well, it's Paul, and he identifies himself as an apostle. And here's the point he's making. As an apostle, I got my message directly from Jesus Christ. These Judaizers, uh-uh, they're adding to the gospel something that is not there. Now, because Paul gave the unadulterated organic gospel with no preservatives and no additives, you would expect Satan being an angel of light, what is he going to do? He's going to counterfeit that. Satan's going to come up with all kinds of counterfeit gospels, and he has throughout the ages in order to lead people into perdition. 
Jesus said in Matthew 7, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many people are on that road. Now listen carefully. That broad road does not say hell on it. It says heaven. Why? Because Satan is a deceiver. He wants to put people on that broad road, and basically it's displayed that this is the true way, this is the true gospel, but it's a lie. And that's why historically, throughout history, there are people that have been risen up by Satan who claim to have gotten their revelation from God. For example, you look at Islam. Many of you know about the Muslim faith. It's the second largest religion in the world. Christianity tops it, obviously, but Islam is taking over this planet. They said London, I forget what percentage right now, is primarily Islamic. And here is what some people don't know. You'll notice the next slide. Muhammad, when he was uh, engaging in his particular religion, he went to a cave and he was meditating one day and he had an encounter. And in that encounter, he claims he got the true gospel. Here's what Karen Armstrong said. She wrote a book on Muhammad. Here's what she said happened when he was in that cave. Quote, Muhammad was torn from his sleep in his mountain cave, and he felt himself overwhelmed by a devastating presence. Later, he explained this ineffable experience by saying that an angel had enveloped him in a terrifying embrace so that it felt as though the breath was being forced out of his body. The angel gave him the curt command, Irka, recite. Muhammad protested that he could not recite. He was not the Kahin, one of the ecstatic prophets of Arabia, but he said the angel simply embraced him again until, just as he thought he reached the end of his endurance, he found the divinely inspired words of a new scripture pouring forth from his mouth. You see, he's not a real apostle. He's getting a new revelation, and supposedly it's God or an angel revealing this message to him. And by the way, what people don't know is that when he had this encounter, Muhammad thought it was demonic. It frightened him. In fact, to the point that he was going to jump off a cliff and commit suicide. But right before he did that, the angel Gabriel appeared to him and said this to him. I heard a voice from heaven saying, O Muhammad, thou art the apostle of God, and I am Gabriel. End quote. See, here... This angel Gabriel is supposedly giving him a message saying, you're an apostle of God. Well, Paul would disagree with that because Muhammad did not really see the risen Christ. And by the way, he went home and he told his wife about this encounter that he had and how he feared it was demonic. And she reassured him that it was not demonic, that it was a genuine message from God. And you see how Satan counterfeits today? See, Paul says, as the man of the gospel, he says, I'm a genuine apostle. I didn't get my call from a man. I didn't get my call from an agency. No one in Jerusalem appointed me. The religious muckety-mucks there, they didn't appoint me. He says, I'm a true apostle. And as an apostle, I got my revelation directly from Jesus Christ. Well, what do you think Satan's going to do? He's going to counterfeit that. And so what you get is Muhammad. He has this encounter. It's a demonic encounter. God gives him what he thinks to be the true message, and the rest is history. It's recorded in the Quran, and now you have a worldwide religion. Why does Satan do that? 
Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many are on that road. And so what Satan wants to do is he wants to counterfeit that. And so Paul here identifies himself as the man of the gospel. Who is this man? It's Paul, and he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Secondly, I would have you note the message of the gospel. We've seen the man of the gospel, now the message of the gospel. He's going to give the message here in verses 1 through 4. He says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. You see, there's one component of the gospel he's going to give. And all the brothers and sisters with me. Why does he mention that? Well, because all the other Christians in Antioch were reinforcing his message. And he says to the churches in Galatia, there was more than one church there. And then notice the other aspect of the message of the gospel he gives in verse 3. He mentions the word grace. See, that's an integral part of the gospel. We're saved by grace, not works. Grace is God's unmerited favor. We cannot earn or deserve salvation. It is a gift. If you could earn it, it would no longer be by grace. And then notice the result. He says, grace to you and peace. Peace is the result of salvation. When I come to Christ, I'm at peace with God. Notice this grace and peace are from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 4, he gives another component of the message, who gave himself for our sins. Jesus died as a substitute. He died as a sacrifice for God. Why? So that he might, here it is, here's another aspect of the gospel, rescue us from this present evil age. This is the purpose of salvation. Jesus delivers me not only from the penalty of sin, he delivers me from the power of sin, and then he also delivers me from one day the presence of sin. And notice, this gospel was according to the will of our God and Father. It was planned before time. So in these brief verses, Paul, right at the outset, as he comes sprints right out of the blocks, he gives the gospel message. Why? Because the gospel message was under attack. And so here is what to summarize what he says about the gospel in these several verses. He said salvation was planned before time. It was part of the will of God. Jesus died before the foundation of the world, so we know the whole plan of redemption was developed by God before time began. The Bible says that you and I are sinners by nature and by choice. Jesus died as a substitute in our place, and he also rose from the dead. And Paul says here, basically, he says throughout the epistle, that if you trust in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection alone, no preservatives, no additives, he says, you will have what? Peace with God. It's by grace you are saved, and that's all according to the will of God. And what God does is the moment you repent and trust in Jesus Christ, God delivers you from this present evil age. What does that mean? It means God takes you out of the system, and he helps you to see who he is from his perspective. In other words, God delivers you from the world, the flesh, and the devil. That doesn't mean you're not going to be tempted, you're not going to struggle, but what it does mean is God gives you a new mind. You're now able to see life from God's perspective. You see, God's will is not just to rescue us from the penalty of sin. He makes it clear here that God wants to rescue us from the power of sin. He wants to deliver us from this present evil age. And you know what the problem is? A lot of Christians today are acting too much like the world. Now, we're all guilty of this. 
But listen, the Bible says God took you out of the world. He rescued you. In fact, that word rescue there in the Greek, it means in the Old Testament of Israel being rescued out of Egypt. See, you and I were in bondage prior to salvation. You know what God did? He rescued us out of Egypt. And you know where God is taking us? He's taking us to the promised land. But right now, you and I are in the wilderness. And either you're on the way to the promised land obeying God, or watch this, you're wandering in the wilderness. And listen, if God rescued you, and he's taking you to the promised land, he doesn't want you to wander in the wilderness. You know what it means to wander in the wilderness? It means you're not doing the will of God. You're not in the word. You're not in prayer. You're not in fellowship. You're not serving God. You're a Sunday Christian only. I just come to hear a message and tell the pastor what a great job he did. I tip God in the offering plate, and that's the extent of my Christianity. Listen, God didn't rescue you from the penalty of sin so that you would sit soaking sour. God wants you to follow him and serve him. And by the way, it's interesting here when it says he came to deliver us from this present evil age. The Bible never talks about the end of the world. It talks about the end of the age. Right now, we're in this current evil age. But Jesus Christ is going to usher in a new age. When is that going to happen? When he returns at his second coming. And so here is basically the message that he gives right off the bat. He says, Jesus died. He rose from the dead. If we believe, God will save us, and it's all by grace. And listen, we've been given this message. Are we sharing it? I have to work at it constantly because I realize that my natural tendency is to turn inward. I get comfortable in my Christianity. I don't know about you, but it's easy to get very, very comfortable. And so I have to be intentional, praying for my neighbors, praying for family. Just this week, I've been praying for my neighbors, asking God to give me a divine appointment. Well, one of my neighbors, I met him when I first moved here almost a year ago, and we got in a conversation. And I began to talk to him about the Lord, and he's very philosophically minded. He has a lot of questions, and I like I like apologetics. I like engaging people. And so I shared Christ with them. Well, we hadn't talked probably in about six or seven months. And I was coming in my development this past week and he was walking and he waved me down and he said, Hey, look, he says, um, can you pray for me? And I was like, Whoa, he said, can you pray for me? He says, I'm having mental struggles. And he says, I'm in a lot of pain with my shoulder and I'm taking a lot of pain meds. And I said, sure. I said, do you mind if I lay hands on you right now and pray? And so I prayed for him. And then he said this. He said, do you have any books that I can read that defend the existence of God, not evolution? And I said, absolutely. He said, also, do you have a complete Bible? I said, absolutely. And so I came back to the church, got it for him, put him in his mailbox the next day. He took him out and I haven't talked to him since, but Seeds have been planted and he's reading. And then just this week, I met with somebody at the Christian Cafe here in downtown Lexington. There's a coffee house there, really nice. When I got done meeting with this individual, I was walking out and then I turned to the left and I noticed this long hallway and I saw a FedEx guy walking towards me and I felt the Lord speak to me and he said, I want you to witness to that guy. I was like, huh? He said, talk to that guy about me. So I stopped and I said, all right, Lord, I'm going to take, take a risk here because, you know, 
I do a lot of stranger evangelism, but you know, I struggle with fear just like you do. And so I said, all right. So I went back and I passed him. I didn't want to stop him dead in his tracks and go, dude, you're going to hell. You know, I didn't want to say that to him. (laughs) And so I passed him up and I said, Lord, I'll make you a deal here. I said, if I get to my car quick enough and get over and his FedEx truck is still there, I said, I'll talk to him. And so I hurried up to my truck, got in it, I crossed over the medium, and he was, he was just coming out. He gets in his truck, and I wave him down, and I give him one of our 4P cards over there. And I said, hey, listen, I just want to ask you a question. My name is Mike. I said, I felt the Lord prompt me to ask you this question. Where are you going to go when you die? He said, I don't know. He said, that's a good question. And so we got to talking. I thought he was from one of the islands. And I said to him, I said, where are you from? And he said, I'm from Miami. For those of you who don't know, that's exactly where I'm from. I grew up in Miami, Florida. And so you see how God timed this in such a way, I shared the gospel and I gave him the information. Now, you may say, Mike, that just doesn't resonate with me. I'm not that kind of person. And that's fine. God works through all different types of personalities. You may not like stranger evangelism, but listen carefully. God calls you to give the message. Paul gives the message right here in Galatians, right off the bat, and he calls us to share that message. Now, where does the Bible say we're to share it? Notice this in this uh, diagram. Next slide. The Bible gives us the model in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says that we're to be in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Jesus told the disciples before he left, he gave them his last marching orders. He said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Let's translate that. We're to be witnesses in Lexington, then South Carolina, then the U.S., and then the world. Because people often say, man, there's so many needs in Lexington. Why are we bothering to go to these other areas? Well, listen, it's not an either or. It's a both and. We're called to be witnesses to simultaneously these areas. And so John and I have been talking about this year, each one what? Reach one. And so here's what I'm encouraging you to do. If we have the message... Find one person this coming up year that you're going to pray for and that you're going to ask God to give you the opportunity to share the gospel because Jesus said, follow me and I will make you what? So here's the question, fishers of men. If we're not, if we're following Jesus Christ, we're going to be fishers for men, which means if we have no interest in reaching out to lost people, what does that say? Are we really following Jesus Christ? And so we've seen the man of the gospel. We've seen the message of the gospel. Thirdly, I would have you note the mutilation of the gospel. Notice, if you will, verses 6 through 10. And by the way, before he goes into verse 6, he's going to use very, very strong language here. Now, typically, before Paul would launch in to his discussion, he would always give a word of affirmation and a word of praise. But here... He doesn't give any word of praise. He launches right in, and he uses very, very strong language. He really does that throughout the book of Galatians. In fact, at one point in chapter 6, speaking to the Judaizers who believed that you had to believe in Jesus plus be circumcised to be saved, he says, you know what, in chapter 6, he says, "They they want to be circumcised. He says, you know what, I wish they would go the whole way and castrate themselves. That was Paul. That's how vehement he was about the gospel. But notice here what he says here, how these Judaizers were mutilating the gospel. Notice, if you will, verse 6. I'm amazed 
I'm shocked. I'm bewildered that you Galatians are so quickly deserting. Notice he doesn't say the gospel. He says him. Who's the him? That's Jesus. Why does he say that? Because listen carefully. Whenever you depart from the true gospel, you're not departing from a set of doctrines. You're departing from Christ because Christ encapsulates the gospel. You see, Christianity is a relationship with God. And so if you become a Christian and then you turn to another gospel, you're not forsaking a set of doctrines. You're forsaking the person who saved you. It's like us as parents. You know, when our kids are growing up, we teach them, we teach them truth. We give them stuff that will help them go through life. We give them life lessons. We do all these things, and what happens? Some kids follow it, and some kids depart from it. And listen, if your children depart from what you taught them, they're not departing from the information you gave them. They are departing from you as a parent. Why? Because it's a relationship, and that's what he says here. He says, look, I'm bewildered that you're so quickly deserting Christ who called you or saved you by the grace of Christ. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. That's what grace is. And notice what he says. You're turning to a different gospel. Now, that word different there in the Greek is an interesting word. It means something of a different kind. In other words, it's the Greek word heteros. Now, we get the word heterosexual. What does heterosexual mean? Heterosexual means of the opposite sex homosexual means of the same sex. And so when he says, you're listening to a heteros, another gospel, it is a different gospel. It is heterodoxy, different doctrine. Orthodoxy is following straight doctrine. Heterodoxy means you're following a different type of gospel. They were turning away from the true gospel and he's shocked. And he says, which is really not another gospel, verse 7, only there are some who are disturbing or confusing you Galatians. Now here's the mutilation of the gospel and want to distort or mutilate the gospel of Christ. He says, I'm shocked that you're listening to these people. Now here is the strong language that he's going to use in verse 8. But even if we, if we as apostles, or an angel from heaven, Islam, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be eternally condemned, accursed. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25 when he separates the sheep from the goats? He says to the ones on the left, Depart from me, you who are what? Cursed into the eternal fire. You know what he's pronouncing here when he pronounces a curse? He's saying if anyone gives another gospel other than faith alone in Jesus Christ, the organic gospel, if anyone adds preservatives and additives, he said, let that person be eternally damned. They're going to hell. Ouch. And then he says, in case you forgot, verse 9, as we've said before, and he says, I'm going to repeat myself again. I do not stutter. If a man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, Galatians, he's to be accursed. Very strong language. Now, this does not fit into our politically correct culture. 
Because in our culture today, every truth is valid. Everyone's religion is valid. I was talking to a guy on the internet, as I often do, and he said to me, he says, you're arrogant because you think you have a corner on God. And I said to him, I do have a corner on God. I said, not because I'm proud and not because of me. I said, here's the reason why I have a corner on God. Because God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And I said to this gentleman, Jesus Christ is unique. I said, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Every other religious leader is still dead. And I said, furthermore, every religion says you got to do X, Y, Z in order to get to heaven. If they even believe in a heaven. I said, Christianity is the only faith that says you cannot earn your way to heaven. It's by faith alone. That's the organic gospel. No preservatives, no additives. And I said, that's why I have a corner on God, not because of me, but because of the person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul here is basically saying anyone who mutilates the gospel, anyone who twists it and tells you there's another way of salvation, he says they're going to be eternally damned. And you know what this is implying? There's only one way to heaven. That's why over the years I've had to analyze my faith. I'm a thinker by nature. And I don't just accept something because you tell me it's the truth. I'm going to analyze it. And over the last 30 years, I have studied the New Testament documents. I have studied the life of Jesus Christ. Because listen, if I'm going to preach this message, I want to make sure it's the right message. Because then you ask the question, well, maybe we're wrong and maybe everybody else is wrong. Maybe the Muslims are right and we're in trouble. And so over the years, I've had to analyze my faith and say, all right, this gospel is an exclusive gospel. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I am a way, a truth, and a life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And anyone who doesn't come through Jesus Christ, Paul says, they're going to be eternally separated from God. Now listen, this is why it's so important. Are you listening? Say amen. We get the gospel right. We cannot deviate when it comes to the gospel. Listen, we may have some intramural debates among Christians. We may agree to disagree on certain doctrines of the Bible, and we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. But when it comes to the message of salvation, it is the foundation doctrine. It is the article by which the church stands or falls, according to Martin Luther, and we cannot get that wrong. Because if we get the gospel wrong, we're going to lead people into eternal separation from God. And so it's very incumbent upon us as Christians that we know the gospel and that we proclaim it in all of its truth, an organic gospel. And that's why Satan hates the gospel. That's why he's going to counterfeit it. He's an angel of light because he wants it to be faith plus works, faith plus the sacraments, faith plus this. Now, let me tell you what makes this really insidious. When it comes to all the religions of the world, Hinduism, Sikhism, Buddhism, Shintoism, and all the isms out there, we all go, you know what? That's pretty clear that that's false. But let me tell you what's more insidious. When you have something that represents Christianity, but is not the truth. For example, and again, I want to be gracious here, Roman Catholicism. I grew up in somewhat of a Roman Catholic church. And I know there are Catholics that are saved. I really believe that. But if you look at the doctrine of Roman Catholicism, it teaches a Judaizing gospel. 
Because what they say is it's faith plus keeping the sacraments. I had a discussion with a lady online just this week, and she was taking me to task with Catholicism, and she told me, you're going to purgatory. I said, no, I'm not. She wanted to argue with me, and I explained to her. She said, well, what do you do about this experience and this experience about Mary appearing to this person? I said, listen, I said, you have to measure your experience by the Word of God. And if the experience contradicts the message of salvation in the Bible, it's not a legitimate experience. But see, that's more deceiving. Because a lot of times you'll meet false teachers that are very nice, they're very gracious, and they represent God. But one of the tests that you have to look at is ask this question. What do they believe about Jesus? And what do they believe about the gospel? Are they teaching salvation by faith alone? One other one that's insidious that ostensibly appears to be Christian, but when you dig a little bit deeper, you realize it's a false gospel is Mormonism. You ever seen the commercials on TV that talk about the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints? When you watch the commercial, it sounds like a Christian church. I remember I met a guy one time in a restaurant. We were traveling, and uh, we were at a KFC, and this particular gentleman, I got to share Christ with him, and he said, I'm a Mormon, and he goes, let me tell you why I came to Mormonism. He said, when I was going through a downtime in my life, when my family was hurting, they were there for me. And by the way, that's an indictment sometimes on the church, that we're not there for people. But he said, they were there for me. And I said, that's great. I said, but here's the problem. Have you looked at their message? You see, Mormonism basically says that Joseph Smith was going to restore the true gospel. For example, look at this picture up here. You'll notice Joseph Smith, if you read the biography, he had as a young boy an encounter with the father and the son. Joseph Smith was a gold digger. He sought treasure. And one day he went out of the forest alone and he said, God, I don't know what church I should join. So he asked God for wisdom And he said that the father and the son appeared to him and said this to him, you're not to join any of those churches. They're all an abomination. And here's what he said in the quote, I was answered that I must join none of them for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach the doctrines They teach for doctrines the commandments of men having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof, end quote. And so what the father and the son supposedly told Joseph Smith, all churches are wrong. I'm going to use you to restore the true church and give you the true gospel. Well, later on, he had another encounter with the angel Moroni. The angel Moroni appeared to him and said this, quote, There is a book deposited, written upon gold plates, given account of the former inhabitants of this continent, the U.S., and the source from whence they sprang. He also said that the fullness, look at this right here, the fullness of the everlasting gospel was contained in these plates as delivered by the Savior to the ancient inhabitants, end quote. You know what those plates were? They were found in Palmyra, New York upstate New York. He used his seer stones. Supposedly, God led him. The plates were in Egyptian hieroglyphics, and he used these seer stones to translate those plates, 
And that's what became subsequently the Book of Mormon. Now notice here, the angel Moroni said, you're going to get these plates, and in those plates, give the real gospel. But notice here, it departs from apostolic doctrine, because if you look at Mormonism, it is a hodgepodge of contradiction. And so Paul here says, if anyone mutilates the gospel, let him be damned. Well, there's one final point for this morning, and that is the motive of the gospel, the motive of the gospel. Notice, if you will, verse 10. After Paul pronounces damnation upon the Judaizers, he says this in verse 10, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? See, you know what they were accusing Paul of, these Judaizers? The only reason why he's preaching faith alone is he doesn't want to be persecuted. The reason why Paul is not telling the Gentile converts in Galatia that they need to conform to Judaism they need to keep the feasts and the festivals, and they need to be circumcised. The only reason why Paul is omitting that from his message is he doesn't want to offend them. He's a people pleaser. Paul says, really? He says, I just got done pronouncing damnation. So he says there, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? He says, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. In other words, you cannot water down the gospel and serve God. The two are mutually exclusive. And then he says in verse 10, we see his motive here as well, rather verse 4 and 5. He says of Jesus who gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And notice his motive here in verse 5. To whom be the what? Say it out loud glory forevermore. You see, Paul's driving passion was not to be a people pleaser. It was to glorify God. And in order to glorify God, Paul had to preach the organic gospel. No preservatives, no additives. And you know what? That wasn't popular. And Paul was persecuted for it. But you know what Paul's goal was? It was to please God, not man. And if you and I are going to please God, We've got to stick to the gospel, even though it's not popular, because when you tell people that they can't do anything to earn their salvation, and there's only one way to be saved, people react. People get angry. When you preach the exclusivity of Jesus in a Muslim land, in Iran and Iraq, and you tell them Jesus is the only way, you may suffer the loss of your life for preaching that message. But listen carefully, we're called to please God, not man. And so we cannot water the gospel down. We have to make sure that our motive is we want to serve God. And you know what? Sometimes, let's be honest, we're all people pleasers. I don't think so much in terms of watering the gospel down because you've been well taught here. But let me tell you where we all struggle with being a people pleaser. We don't say anything because we want the favor of man more than we want God's favor. Now, I'm not saying everybody you walk up to, you necessarily need to witness to, but listen carefully, and I say this in a spirit of love, how many of you have been saved for years who believe in Jesus Christ, and you've never shared your faith once? How is it the church of Jesus Christ can go year after year after year, and it's not just here, it's all over the U.S., because they say statistically, 90 plus percent of Christians don't know the gospel, and they've never shared the gospel there's something going wrong. You know what it is? We're too comfortable. And you know what it is? We want the approval of man more than we want the approval of God. I'm not saying you're not going to struggle. I've had opportunities and I haven't spoken up, 
But listen, the goal of my life is to share Christ. How about you? How about you? Do you keep quiet? Are you like the Antarctica frozen over at the mouth? Or do you want Jesus Christ to be proclaimed? And so Paul talks about the man of the gospel, the message of the gospel, the mutilation, and finally the motive. Now, what is the organic gospel as we close? Here it is up on the screen. The organic gospel is this, salvation by faith alone in Christ plus what? Nothing. No preservatives, no what? You say, Mike, as I close, let me answer this question. Then what about good works? What about good works? I mean, can I just believe in Jesus and do whatever I want? All I got to do is believe. Listen, believing is more than just believing the facts. Believing in Jesus Christ involves the mind, the will, and the emotions. Now watch this. Are you listening? Say amen. If you truly trust in Jesus, it'll produce good works. Good works is not the basis of my salvation. I can't do anything to earn my salvation. But good works is a byproduct. I like to say it this way. Faith is the root. Good works are the fruit. Faith is the root. Good works are the fruit. All three of my daughters are pregnant at the same time. I know, some of you are going, we'll pray for you, brother. <laughs> All three of them had new life implanted in them. When the sperm and the egg met, new life was implanted in their womb. And you know what happened over time? That new life that was in them began to show itself, didn't it? Right? started to show itself. You see, if I have new life in me, it's going to manifest itself. If it doesn't manifest itself, I need to question whether I have new life. I have to question whether my faith is genuine because there's a lot of people today in the American church that have engaged in what is called easy believism. They prayed a prayer, they walked an aisle, they signed a card, and they said, oh yeah, I accepted Jesus when I was seven years old, but for the last 20 years, there's no fruit in their life. No fruit, no root. So that's the organic gospel, people. Let's stick to that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us in giving us the organic gospel. That we're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ, not works. Works are a byproduct. But Father, we thank you that they're not the basis. Because Lord, if it depended on our works, none of us would ever get in because we all fall short. So God, we just thank you for the organic gospel that saved a wretch like us. We thank you that Jesus died, that he rose again from the dead, and that through faith and repentance in him, we may have eternal life. Lord, help us to proclaim that gospel boldly Help us to proclaim it lovingly and help us to not be ashamed. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.